If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 14. John chapter 14 is where we'll be today. We're continuing our series through the Gospel of John. Last week we had Baptism Sunday. We do that a couple times a year. It's just one of my favorite things to hear testimonies. Uh, and we return now to our, our series in the Gospel of John. And as you're flipping there, as you're, as you're turning to John 14, it's such a rich passage. And I, I think that it's a timely one for us as a church family. You know, it's good that we learn to think about ourselves corporately, not just individualistically. And let me explain what I mean by that. You know, as your pastor, I get the privilege of just kind of viewing what's going on in a lot of lives. And I know that some of you may be in a really great season, and I'm so glad for that if you are. But I have the sense that collectively, we may be in a season of, of having troubled hearts. We've lost some dear members of our church in the, in the last couple weeks, um, three funerals in the last two weeks of some really precious people gone home to be with the Lord, and so he rejoices those who have hope that they knew the Lord, but also folks just going through trial, tribulation, turmoil, and that may not be you, and if it's not, I'm so glad that it's not you, but I also want to remind you, you belong to a body, and when members of that body hurt, then we hurt too, yes? When members of our church hurt, we hurt too, and I know in a church this size, there will always be some hurting people, and there will always be some people who are in a season of joy and fullness and fulfillment, and, I, and I'm glad for that because we, we help each other remember then that every season is not the only season, whatever we may find ourselves in, but I can't help but think uh, that perhaps we're in a season right now, collectively together as a body of a bit of loss and a bit of trouble and, and perhaps lacking peace. I feel that. And so I'm so thankful as we're going through the Gospel of John that we come to John 14 today where Jesus has some peace-inducing words to speak to us. Some peace-inducing words. Let me say this too. If I'm, if I'm right, and I don't know that I am, but if I'm right that we're in a season of being troubled, I also believe that that season is about God preparing us for revival in our hearts and in our midst. That God is preparing for us something that is coming, and I trust that it's coming, that there will be a season of joy and abundance and of confession and repentance and deeper intimacy with Christ. You know that revival comes into our hearts and into our midst when all those things happen first, right? And so often we have to be broken. We have to be dealt with in, in tough ways sometimes. Certain things have to be taken from us so that we might turn to him. And as we do, we find a season of refreshing comes. That's my prayer. It's been my prayer all week as I've looked at this. And um, so I'm gonna move us through this text. And as we do, I'm gonna encourage you, we're gonna have some time to pray together afterwards because we're just gonna need that, I think. Um, so let's look at John 14 together <clears throat> and the peace that Jesus offers us there. So Look at verse 1 and then verse 27. Let me just show you kind of how Jesus sets the parameters of what he's talking about. Now remember, we're in this section of John. It's the upper room discourse. So it's the night before Jesus is going to go to the cross. Uh, and he is sharing with his disciples. Now he stopped talking to the crowds and he's talking to those he's closest to, those who are following him. And Judas, the betrayer, has left now. And so we just have the 11 uh, and he's talking to them, and he's just given them a, a new commandment, if you remember John 13, where he said, love one another as I have loved you. And so he's challenging them with this great command to love one another. But then in this moment where who really should be comforted? Jesus should be comforted in this moment. 
the agony of what awaits him that he is aware of and knows, you would think he would just say, I need you to comfort me. And Jesus is going to go out of his way in this moment to make sure that he comforts them. The love of our Savior is so good that in the moment in his human life where he was most in need of someone to come and say, I'm with you and it's going to be okay and can I minister peace to you, he's going to seek to minister peace to others. He's going to stop and he's going to say, you, I recognize, are going to be troubled and I, need, I want to help you with that. So look at verse 1 and verse 1. Jesus sets the tenor and he says, chapter 14, verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Let not your hearts be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me. So that's gonna set the tone for everything else that's gonna follow. And almost as a bookend then, at the other end of the chapter, verse 27, so it's, it's almost the very end of this chapter, so just kind of scan your eyes down to verse 27. And he says this, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you, And then there it is again. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You see, these bookends are telling us what this chapter is all about. We're going to hear some really rich things throughout all of John 14, but all of them are bookended by these two statements, essentially. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Let not your hearts be troubled. I I give you peace, and I don't give it the way the world gives it. I don't give it and take it away. I don't give it conditionally. I have a peace to give to you. So what Jesus is doing in John chapter 14, as he's preparing to depart, he recognizes that his disciples are about to enter into a season of feeling very troubled. In fact, perhaps they're going to feel abandoned by him. Alone, isolated, left. And he wants to give them tools so that when they feel that way, they are reminded that he has peace to give and he wants these tools that he gives them to be how that peace gets imparted. Yes? Perhaps you felt abandoned by God. Perhaps perhaps you felt like for a good long while you've prayed and those, those prayers seem to hit the ceiling and bounce right back down to you rather than being heard by God. One, that's not true. They are heard. But two, I just... I want to encourage you that Jesus wants to offer you peace today. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give. My peace I give to you. So we come to the text now looking for that peace. So he has peace to give when our hearts are troubled. And I'm going to give you six ways that Jesus imparts this peace to us. Six ways. Now, first, before we get into those six ways, the first thing we have to do is we have to understand the root of the trouble in our hearts We have to understand where that trouble comes from. So in other words, is our trouble just related to our circumstances, that we have hard circumstances and that that's the root of our trouble? And of course, we all deal with hard circumstances, yes? And when we deal with them, we feel troubled. Would we all agree with that? Of course we do. But we have to understand that it's not the circumstances that are the actual deepest root of the trouble in our hearts. It's not the circumstances that we are in that is the actual deepest root of the trouble in our hearts. And here's why it's good to know that. Because if we believe the circumstances are the deepest root of the trouble in our hearts, then it's not until the circumstances change, then the trouble will go away. The only way to get that trouble out would be to get the circumstances off. And sometimes circumstances don't come off. They don't leave, they're not undone. They linger for quite a long while sometimes. And it's so good that it's not the circumstances that are the actual root of the trouble in our hearts because 
if the root is something else and it's something that Jesus can deal with, then what that tells us is that we can have hearts that move out of trouble and into peace in spite of our circumstances. You see? So look at what he says. Go back to verse 1 again because he's going to tell us the root of the trouble in our hearts. And I want you to hear this not as condemning but as encouraging. And I'll tell you how. Because here's what he says. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. So in one sense, he's doing something very simple there. Jesus is affirming his equality with God again. I gotta point this out every time it happens in John because how often do we hear, well, did Jesus ever claim to be God? He absolutely did and he does again and again and again. And I hope at the end of this series in the Gospel of John, anyone that ever says to you, Jesus never claimed to be God, you would say, no, because my pastor took me through John. And we saw it like every week for like a year. It got old, right? I mean, so in one sense, that's what he's doing. Believe in God, believe in me. <coughs> but the second thing, if he says, don't let your hearts be troubled, and the very next words out of his mouth are believe, then what is he doing? He's giving us the remedy for our trouble. Belief. And if belief is the remedy for our trouble, then the root of our trouble is unbelief or false belief. That's the true root of all the trouble, all the lack of peace. It's unbelief. Now listen, here's how that can sound. It can say, you can hear me saying, just believe more and you'll be fine. Just have more faith in the midst of whatever hardship you're going through and you'll feel peace. Just suck it up. And believe more. But I don't think that's what Jesus is doing. I don't think he's sitting here going, disciples, just believe. And you'll be fine. Bunch of pansies. <coughs> I don't think that's what he's doing. I think what he's saying is the root of your, the root of your trouble is unbelief. And now I want to help you. Because I want to give you things to help you believe. And here's the deal. I can deal with your unbelief. So he's not, if you find yourself today troubled and you, and you go, oh man, the root of that is that I don't believe some of his promises or I don't believe his goodness or I don't believe his love or I don't believe that he's coming again or I don't, you know, whatever the unbelief is that is the root of the trouble in your hearts, don't hear me today say to you, suck it up and believe. Hear me say to you, he can help move you towards faith and belief in such a way that he can rid the trouble in your heart. He can take the trouble out of your heart. And it's so good that that's the root of our trouble because he can do something about that. Okay? So that's the first thing we need to understand. The trouble, the root of it is it's unbelief or false belief. And He's good enough to come to us now and help deal with that. So let's look at six ways then that in this passage, we're just going to stick to this passage, six ways that Jesus wants to help root out that unbelief or that false belief in our hearts and usher in peace that abounds. The first thing we see is this in verses one through four. First truth, peace giving in the midst of a troubled heart is he is preparing a place for us. If we feel abandoned by God, we need to remember that Jesus has said, yes, I have left, but I am gone because I'm doing something for you. I am at work on your behalf where I am, thinking about you so that I can bring you where I am. I'm making a home for you. Look at what he says, 
Begin again in verse one. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are what, church? Many rooms. Now, again, this is a metaphor. He's not literally saying there's a house up in heaven that you and I are gonna live in. He's using the house as a metaphor. And the point of the metaphor is this. The point is the, the word many, and the point is Father. My Father has a house. If you live in the Father's house, who are you? You're a son or a daughter. You belong in the family. You are ushered in. And he said, there are many rooms. So not just five of us are, there's not just space for five of us. There's many rooms. A lot of us are gonna be there. That's the point of this metaphor. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. So the first thing we see here, church, is that he's wanting to give peace by saying, look, I know I may seem absent, but know that I'm working on your behalf, even while I seem absent. And that's not true for, just true for the disciples who were gonna be saying, where did you go? Why? We miss you. We want you back. When are you coming back? And he's saying, I'm at work on your behalf. So he's trying to help them understand that while he's gone. When God feels absent in your life, do you know he's still at work on your behalf? Even when he is still, when he feels absent, he is at work on your behalf. He has promised you that he is preparing a place for you. And if he's promised, then he will come again and take you to himself so that where he is, you also will be. He wants you with him and he's gonna come get you. That's a true assurance. The first two peace-inducing truths in this passage are both future-oriented. And if, if we only dealt in the future, only the after death stuff, I understand that you might be like, well, what about the here and now? Well, we're gonna get four more that are gonna be about the here and now. But can I just tell you that he knows we need a mix of both those things? Because if we only had hope in this life that he could deal with our turmoil and deal with our trouble and give us peace, but we had no sense that after death there was any peace assured for us, that would be a real problem. Do you see that? After death is a lot longer than before death. Do we all know this? And so he says, look, I want to deal with the future here for a moment. And I want to tell you that I've gone away, but I've gone away to make a place for you. Never forget, go back to again and again, that Jesus has promised if you are in him, he is making a place for you, preparing a home for you. It's, I mean, let's just press into the metaphor here for a moment. Can we just imagine this home? The fireplace is roaring the chocolate chip cookie smell is piped in. That's just me. You, whatever you like, you know, what, what, what's your jam? You do that. It's warm and peaceful. And you don't walk in there in strife. There's never strife again in this home. You walk into this home and you sit down and you tell stories and you, and you listen and you're loved. And Have you ever been in a home where love is just reigning over the place? My wife and I pray for our home to be that way. Where love would just reign in that place so that someone walks in the door and it's like they just get hit by a wave of love. It smells like chocolate chip cookies. That's what it's, that's what we want, you know. He's preparing a place for us. That's number one. He's preparing a place for us. 
It's peace-inducing, you know. He also does, he hasn't left us for no purpose, right? Think about this. I thought about this. I, um, my wife stays home with the kids, and, and I, obviously, I come to work here. And my kids have gone through that season where they don't want dad to leave for work, you know. Um, you know, moms and dads, if you work outside the home, um, you've experienced this where the kids are, like, guarding the door, like, barring the door and being like, no, you shall not pass, you know. My, my son, Deacon, right now he's four. He has like, there's a password every day when I leave. I have to figure out the password. It takes a good 10 minutes to figure out what the password is. I'm like, I don't, you know, I just keep guessing and guessing. Finally, I'm like, I have to go, right? But he doesn't understand. He just doesn't want dad to go. What he doesn't understand is that dad is leaving to provide the home that he's living in. Dad is leaving to, to provide something, to do something on his behalf. And that's what Jesus is saying. I, I've left, but not for no purpose. I'm not with you physically now because I'm doing something for you where I am. The next thing that we see is in verses five and six, and it was set up by verse four where it says, you know the way to where I'm going. Now look at what verse five and six say. It says, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? That's a pretty good question, right? We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now here's what Jesus has just said to the disciples. The emphasis on that statement, I am the way and the truth and the life in verse six is on the first part of that, I am the way. Now when he says I'm the truth, he's saying I am the full representation of the nature and the way and the purposes of God in the world. That's what that means. I am the truth means I am the perfect representation of the nature of God, of the purposes of God and of the ways of God in the world. When he says, I'm the life, he's saying essentially, I'm the creator. I'm the one that if something is alive, that animating force that's in it, I put it there. That's mine to give and it's mine to take. I possess it. It belongs to me. I'm the life. But the emphasis in this text is not on the truth or the life. The emphasis in the text is on I am the way because they've just been talking about Thomas saying, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus says, I am the way. Now, let's just think for a moment what he means. Essentially, what he's just said to the disciples is, the place that I'm preparing for you that we saw in verses one through four, there's no chance you won't get there. That's what he's just said. There is zero chance. Here's another future-oriented, peace-inducing truth. There is no chance that if you are in Christ Jesus, that you will not get to the place that he's prepared for you. Do you see the logic of, of what Jesus is doing? If I've prepared a place for you, what if I can't get there, Jesus? And Jesus says, there's no chance you won't get there. Do you know why? Because I'm the way. I'm the way there. In other words, here's what Jesus is saying. It's not as if I have made a place for you over here and you're over here. And what I did is I bushwhacked a trail for you and I left a bunch of breadcrumbs behind. And you've got to figure out how to follow the trail to get to the place that I prepared for you. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the way that you walk on to get there is not just a trail that I blazed for you. I am the thing that you walk on to get there. So let's think about it this way. Let's use another metaphor. Anybody been to the Grand Canyon? Okay, so let's look at a picture of the Grand Canyon here. That's massive. Essentially what Jesus is saying when he says, I am the way, he's saying this. The place that I prepared for you is on that far ridge and you gotta get there. And what I've done is I've stretched a tightrope from one ridge to the other ridge. That's the way that I have made for you. 
And the answer, of course, is now everybody, how good do you feel about walking that tightrope over to the other side? Everybody feel good about that? Feel like you're gonna make it? No, the answer is no, you're not. And what Jesus is saying when he says, I am the way, he's saying, not only have I sort of made the way, now when you are standing here, I'm gonna put you on my shoulders and I'm gonna walk you across the canyon on the tightrope. I'm the one who takes you where you need to go. It's an imperfect metaphor, trust me, all right? But that's the, that's the idea that Jesus is saying. I, I haven't just made a way, I am the way. Believing in me is how you get to the place that I've prepared for you. I carry you there. That's how you get there. I carry you there. And can we just take it one step further? Because Colossians chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3 says that our life is hidden with God in Christ Jesus. Have you ever pondered this text before? Our life is hidden with God in Christ Jesus. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, then we also will appear with him. Do you know what Paul is saying in Colossians chapter 3? Essentially, he's saying this. What Jesus has done in getting you to the other side is so certain, it's so assured, if you have faith in him, that your true life is actually not the one you're living right here, right now. It's the life you will live in eternity with him. That's who you really are. That's where your real life is. In fact, you won't even see what your real life is like until he appears. And then you'll actually see your true life once and for all. So if we want to take this canyon idea a little further, essentially what he's saying is, I've already carried you to the other side. Your true life is already over there. That's where you're actually living. Now I know for now, in the body, you're over here and you're living on this side, on this ridge over here, but essentially it's so certain that I will carry you over there if you believe in me that your true life is already happening over there. You just don't see it yet because it's hidden with Christ in God according to Colossians chapter three. It's marvelous. Two future truth, truths that give peace. Now, let's go to the ones that are present, the ones that are now. In verses 12 through 15, we see our third truth, and it's this. You have important work to do and power to do it. You have important work to do and power to do it. You're thinking, well, how is that, how is that peace-inducing? Let me explain. Look at verses 12 through 15 with me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. All right, so here's what he's just said. This is a pretty uh, well-known passage because it's an interesting idea that Jesus is saying. Basically, those who believe in him, he says, they'll do the works that he did and greater works than these will do. And often people hear this and they go, wow, this is like a promise of immense power. And in, in a very real sense, it is. Certainly, it does not eliminate, um, what is not eliminated is the miraculous, that God would work through his people to do the miraculous. But it's not really about the miraculous. I hope you see that. I hope you know that. Because he said two things. When he says, you'll do the works that I do, and greater works than these will you do. Why? Because I go to the Father. First of all, can you imagine doing something greater than raising Lazarus from the dead? 
That's about as big a work as you could do in this life. So I don't think what Jesus is getting at is you're gonna do more impressive things than I did while I was here on earth. You can't do that. There aren't more impressive things to be done. But you can do something that Jesus could not do. You can point to the cross as the true way of salvation for all people that Jesus had not died on that cross yet. So when he lived, his ministry was in a different era than ours is in. So when he says, because I go to the Father, you will do greater works than I did, what he's saying is, because I will have ushered in the truth of God's mysterious plan of salvation for all eternity past that he was working towards, you will now see it and be able to plainly point to it in a way that we have not pointed to it uh, prior to this time. Do you see what I'm saying? It essentially boils down to this. The greater works that we do because Jesus has gone to the Father is that we point people to the cross of Jesus. We point people to the cross of Jesus and they see it and they can know that this is how salvation comes. But here's the real piece for us in this text today, I think. It's this. Is that Jesus, remember, he knows they're gonna have troubled hearts and so what's he gonna spend his time doing? He's He's gonna try and minister peace to those troubled hearts, that sense that perhaps I'm abandoned. And one of the things he's gonna point out to them to help bring that peace is, I'm gonna give you work to do while I'm gone. Not only am I working on your behalf where I am, but I'm gonna give you work to do for me. And by the way, he's gonna tell us in verse 15, I'm gonna send my Holy Spirit to give you power to do that work so that you're not just on your own having to do it yourself. But the Spirit will come and he will help you because he says, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments and I will send another helper, he says in verse 15, basically to help you carry that work out, to love me and obey me and to do the things that I've invited you to do. So here's what it boils down to. He's saying if you want peace for your troubled heart, serve somebody else. If you want peace for your troubled heart, serve somebody else. Get your eyes off yourself. Serve somebody else in the name of Jesus. I was at a funeral yesterday. And in this funeral, um, it was really, I mean, it was just, it was really a sweet moment where um, Tom, who had passed, he wrote letters to us as a congregation. He wrote letters to his family. And I thought it was so telling. He'd been sick for a very long time and you know what Tom said in one of those letters? He just really affirmed what I was gonna share with you today because he said, he said this. He said, if you're struggling with sadness, if you're struggling with grief, he said, go serve somebody. Go serve somebody. This is a guy who was so sick in his last years. And what were his words of encouragement to us? Look, I know I'm going through the ringer here. And he's saying, you know what I found in my sickness? is I just wanted to figure out a way to serve somebody else. It helped he said, it helped. It was, it was just such a practical piece of encouragement. He's trying to encourage us and serve us after his death is what he was doing. It was so impactful. That's what this Jesus is getting at. I'm gonna give you work to do and power to do it. So serve, serve others and you will find peace. You will find peace. Now, Look at verses 16 and 17. They say this, our fourth truth. The fourth truth is this. I'll just say it before I read these verses because it's gonna sound weird, but the fourth truth that's supposed to give peace is you have two lawyers. You're thinking, how is that peace giving? Sorry to my lawyers, all right? But he says, you have two lawyers, and here's what I mean by that. Look at verse 16 with me. 
In verse 16, so sorry, let's start in 15. In 15 he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So he's talking about the Holy Spirit there. But the thing I want to point out that um, is not obvious at, at the first read is that word helper. Did everybody catch that word? If you've got the ESV, if you've got an NIV Bible, then it's translated counselor. So if you've got that, you see that there. There's a lot of different words, to tra- a lot of different ways to translate that word. But the word is paraclete. That's a, kind of a fun word. Everybody say paraclete. Yeah, so that, that's the word there that's being used, right? And his the translation of that is translated counselor, advocate, helper. But here's the idea. It's someone who represents you in a courtroom. Someone who represents you in a legal environment in a courtroom. So who is that? That's a, it's a lawyer, right? It's a defense attorney. But Jesus didn't just say, I will send you a paraclete. <coughs> he said, I'll send you another paraclete. In other words, you already had one. I'm going to send you a second one. Who's the first one? He is. So here's what he's just said. In two words, when he says, I'm going to send you another helper, another advocate, another counselor. Don't think camp counselor. Think legal counselor, right? I'm going to send you another one. What he's saying is, I'm departing and I'm leaving. And now I'm going to go be your paraclete, your advocate, your representative before the Father. So that when the devil shows up and makes accusations against you, and says to the Father, he, she, does not deserve your love. He, she, is a rebel in their spirit and heart. He, she, continues to sin against you and ignore your commands and reveals again and again that they do not love you with faithfulness the way that you've loved them. Jesus silences those accusations because he is our advocate before the throne of God above. He's not just preparing a place for us. He's advocating for us before the Father interceding for us in prayer, and silencing the accusations of the evil one. Now, if he sent another helper, this is where it gets really practical. If he sent the Holy Spirit to be another paraclete, another advocate, then he sent him to do the work on earth that Jesus is doing in heaven. And if Jesus silences the accusations of the devil before the Father in the throne room of heaven, then what does the Holy Spirit do here? He silences the accusations of the devil that we hear whispered into our ears. He says to us again and again, I am your advocate. I am your defense attorney. And when the accusations come, and you've heard those accusations in your heart, haven't you? You've heard them. The Holy Spirit is here. He's here to to be your counselor, to defend you. So that you wouldn't believe the lies that the enemy would want you to believe about yourself. That you are unloved, rejected, couldn't possibly be accepted by God. That he points again and again and and silences the devil so that we wouldn't hear those accusations but hear the truth. Yes, church? That's part of the Holy Spirit's role. Now that means we have to develop ears to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. We have to listen for him. Look. The Holy Spirit is also a corrector, okay? The Holy Spirit corrects us, and Hebrews 12 tells us that a father disciplines those whom he loves. There's a difference between correction and accusation. Do you understand that? A good father corrects us, 
But if that correction is not surrounded with an I love you, then it's not the Father. If the correction you receive is not surrounded with an I love you before and an I love you after, then it's not the Father's correction, it's the accusation of the enemy, which the Holy Spirit is here to silence as our advocate. Let's do something for a moment. So we have to learn to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. So let's just pause here because my voice, rest assured, is not the voice of the Holy Spirit, okay? So we need to hear from him. So here's my question for you. Just close your eyes. Let's just take one minute together because the Spirit of God is here, present with us. He's promised to be when we gather in his name. So I just want to ask you, what is the thing that you so often believe that is not true? And I just want you to ask the Holy Spirit. I just want you to say, Holy Spirit, if there's some lie that I believe, would you show that to me? And I just want you to listen. I just want you to wait and see if he puts a picture in your mind, in your heart. We'll measure it against the scriptures, okay? Got to go home today, measure it against the scriptures. Got to seek wise counsel of godly people. Make sure they'd affirm this too. We don't just take whatever tumbles into our mind. But we're just going to take a moment now. I'm going to be quiet. Just ask the Holy Spirit that question. What have I believed is not true? And what do you say about it? Father, we thank you that you sent the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Jesus, we thank you that you have sent the Holy Spirit. Both of you have said in your word that you have sent him and that he is our advocate. And so we pray that you give us ears to hear as he does his advocacy on our behalf. Silence the lies of the evil one. Quicken our spirits to hear your voice. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Fifth, peace-inducing truth. It's a really simple one. Jesus is alive. Somebody say amen. Yeah, when people say Jesus is alive in church, just in case you're new, we just say amen. Jesus is alive. Now look at what he does. Look at what he, You guys are sweet. <clears throat> look at verses 18 through 24. It's really cool. Here's what Jesus does. Again, he's just talked about the Holy Spirit coming. And then he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. So the first thing we have to decide is what, when is he talking about coming to them? And before this, when he talked about leaving and coming, he's talking about coming again at the end of time, the second coming. And at the end of the passage, he's going to talk about the same coming when he comes the second time. The coming we're still waiting for, yes, church? But in this part, he's actually talking about when he comes to the disciples after he's risen from the dead. 
He's saying, I'm not going to leave these orphans. I'm going to die, but then I'm going to rise again, and I'm going to come to you. And he says this. Whoops, sorry, my page flipped there. He says, uh, you're going to see me no more, but then you will see me. And he says, because I live, you also will live. In other words, because I'm going to rise from the dead, you'll be able to rise forever too. You'll be able to live. In that day, here's the key, verse 20. Here's how we know he's talking about his appearance to them after the resurrection, but before the ascension. Because he says, in that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. In other words, what he's just said is, when I show you that I'm resurrected from the dead, disciples of mine, you're going to understand that for the first time, the connection, I mean truly for the first time, the connection that I have with the Father. You're going to see that I'm in the Father in a way that you have not seen up to this point. Remember how often they seem to don't get what he's talking about? But in their earthly ministry, after he rose, it clicked. They got it. They were like, he's God. He's divine. He's the one. And he was talking all that time about dying and rising from the dead. And John writing his gospel several times said, you know, they didn't understand then, but then they would understand when he was risen. That's what's going on here. And so he says, he says, uh, you will understand that I'm in the Father. And then he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say, you'll understand the kind of deep connection and, and relationship I have with the Father, you're also going to understand that that relationship I have with the Father is mirrored in my relationship with you. And I in you and you in me. In other words, what he's just said is, look, I love the Father. The Father loves me. I obey the Father. You're going to know that I love you and you're going to love me and obey me when you see that I'm risen from the dead. So what he's just said to us, the fact that I'm going to rise from the dead is going to be a weapon in your tool belt to get peace in your heart because it's going to remind you how deep my love is for you. So what he's just told us, church, is really simple. He said, when you are in troubled in heart, go back to the resurrection again and again and again. Go back to the resurrection and proclaim that it's happened. Remind yourself that he is risen. He's not dead. He's not in a tomb that your king has risen from the grave and his love can now get to you because not even death can stop it. There is nothing more powerful, not even death, than the love of Jesus. It comes to us and finds us wherever we are. Nothing can stop it. That's what he's just said. When I'm risen... And I come to you, disciples, you will know that I'm in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. I love that. Now, I know at first glance you read that, and you, don't, you just kind of go, what's he talking about? That's what he's talking about. Jesus is alive. Last peace-inducing truth. The devil couldn't stop Jesus then, and he can't stop him now. Look at verse 30. Verse 30 and 31. So I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. You know he's talking about the devil there, right? The ruler of this world is coming. He's seeing the cross right in front of him, Jesus, and he says, the ruler of this world is coming. He knows the enemy is really delighted to put him on that cross. And that's what he means when he says he's coming. And then he says, he has no claim on me. I love that. Because he's going to the cross and the devil is excited about it. And the devil believes that he's the one putting him on the cross. And Jesus says, 
He doesn't have any claim on me. He has no authority over me. Well, then why are you going to the cross? Look at the next verse. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. What did Jesus just say? Whose will was it for Jesus to die on the cross? In one sense, the devil's, because he delighted in it, because he's a fool. But in another sense, in a truer sense, whose will was it? It's the Father's will. It's the Father's will to crush the Son so that he might save us. So that the world might know that the Son loves the Father and obeys the Father. Just as we love the Son and obey the Son. Do you see it? See, the devil thinks he's up to something, and the devil is coming. And can I just tell you that I'm not going to the cross because the devil has any power over me, and I want to make no mistake about that. Don't you dare, disciples of mine, think that after I go to the cross that the devil had any real power to make that happen, because he did not. He doesn't take my life from me. I lay it down willingly because I love the Father, and I delight to obey his will, and it's his will that I go to the cross. And so I go in obedience to him. And what does that tell us? One, it tells us the devil can't, he couldn't undo Jesus then. Even in his moment where he thought he was the greatest triumph, it was his greatest defeat. And the devil can't defeat Jesus now. But it also tells us this, church. You want peace for a troubled heart? If the cross itself was the will of the Father to accomplish redemption, then there is no burden, no difficulty, no suffering that we would endure that is not redemptive in nature. There is nothing that he would put us through that would not be his will to bring about redemption and restoration in the world. Can I speak to you if you're not a, if you're not a follower of Jesus right now? You may have a friend who's invited you here. You may have a friend who is seriously sick and struggling and suffering. Do you know that it's possible that the Father is displaying and pouring out his love through the sickness of that friend so that you would receive eternal life? And do you know that that friend who's in Christ Jesus would say, I would gladly trade my life so that you would be saved. I would gladly trade my life. If this illness ends in death, if it would cause you to know and believe in the love of Jesus, I will trade. Because that's what my Savior did. He traded his life for mine. And now I follow him, and I will trade my life for someone else's. There is no suffering that is not redemptive in the path of righteousness. That's what the cross tells us. Those are six truths from John 14 that are meant to give us peace for a troubled heart. The Holy Spirit has to bring those things home, yes, to us. So here's what we're going to do. Uh, I'll invite our worship team just to come. I just want to turn our our. We're going to sing two songs to close. I just want to turn it into a time of prayer. And maybe you need to pray with people around you, but also just come and pray here with people up front. If you're experiencing a troubled heart, 
Would you come and pray? Just don't hold back. Let's just make this a time of receiving from God's spirit through one another. So stand with me. I'm gonna pray. Our prayer team's gonna come. And just as we begin to sing, you just come. You just come and be prayed for. Don't wait. We wanna pray with you, for you. Grab someone else around you. Say, I need, I need prayer. Pray with me. Pray for me. That's good too. Lord Jesus, we've heard your word and now. We wanna to respond to it. And I pray, Lord, if in any way, if in any way I have not communicated the comfort you intend to give through your word to us today, the peace that you have to give, if I've missed it, if my tone in any way, just, Lord, let that just pass and just let your spirit come. Take your word, plant it in our hearts. Let it produce a harvest of hope in us. We want to receive from you in this time. Father, thank you for giving us the spirit. We look to receive from him now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.